Scripture reading today comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 1. And if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bibles, you can find this on page 151. Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, Go through the camp and tell the people, Get your supplies ready. Three days from now you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. This is God's word. Now I've been asked to make an announcement And so I will, although I'm sure we are all too virtuous for this to apply to us. I'm sure this does not apply to EM. But if you have, if you drive a Silver Odyssey, license plate 598ZQX, or if you prefer ZQX, then your minivan is out of style. But you're blocking people that are parked in the lot. So you want to sneak out really discreetly and quietly and not let everyone know whose it is. And I'm sure it's not Jane's. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Well, you take your chances. You know, you come to church, right? Okay. So last week, we're very important. event in our church life where we had this guest speaker dealing helping us deal with with a topic that's really crucial you know and and helping us deal with a topic that's you know be, with both congregations so that both youth and parents and grandparents we can all talk about these things so there's uh, if you know if you ordered a book last week and you didn't get it because they sold out then they're in the bookstore if you um See, it wasn't Jane. She just came right back in. She was just getting a bulletin. Anyway. (laughs) Okay, now I have to buy a cake over the weekend, you know, apologize. But anyway, uh, if you ordered a book, they're in a bookstore. If you wanted to hear, you didn't hear some of the sessions and you wanted to hear them, then email cursing. She has permitted me to identify her. So the information's in the bulletin. But here's the point of last week is, you know, first of all, the topic is so current, right? 
And then, you know, he's such a dynamic speaker, right? And Sunday morning was his best effort. And I'm sitting there thinking, pity the poor fool that has to preach next week. <laughs> you know, and I hadn't did up the schedule yet, so I could have put Pastor David in, you know. <laughs> yeah, anyway, so what we're looking at this morning is we're beginning a new series on Joshua. And let me talk about a little bit about this because I think it needs a little bit of, you know, every time we go back to the Old Testament, you know, the minute you put old in something, then it really sounds, you know, distant and hard to relate to. So let's deal with the reality of it. I think often when we go to the Old Testament, well, back up a minute. When we go to the Bible, we already know this thing's old. And then when we go to the Old Testament, it makes it even worse. So let me address this momentarily, and then we'll get into the text. But basically, I think there's at least three reasons why we have a hard time relating to the Old Testament. Three reasons why we tend not to like the Old Testament. And the first one, I think, is on us, and the other two were maybe is on me rather than us as a whole. But I would say one of the reasons we have a hard time relating to the Old Testament is that we're basically overstimulated in life. Now... I came across a recent example of this. I just read about it recently. It happened a couple of years ago. You know, back when Fear Factor was on the TV, do you know there were some church youth groups that started doing Fear Factor stuff? Because, you know, our media so overstimulates us. If you actually gather youth together to read the Bible and pray, I mean, who, who will come, right? So there were churches, big churches, big youth groups, had a Fear Factor youth group. And one example, I don't know how I came across this, but one example was... Uh, they, you know, big youth group, a couple hundred kids, and they, uh, the, the youth pastor got one of the more developed guys in the group to come up on stage in a, what do you call these, um, excuse me, uh, sleeveless t-shirt. You know, I was going to call them wife beater, you know, is the old term for him. A tank top, thank you, thank you. He came up in a tank top. I'm sorry. My wife often wants to exercise edit function beforehand. <laughs> he came up to stage in a tank top. And, you know, he had already gone well through puberty. So he had really, he was, had a hairy body. So here's the deal is they, they put, they smeared, pe- they had him hold his hands back. I put smeared peanut butter on his armpits and then asked for people to come up and lick the peanut butter off. And they drew a spiritual lesson out of that. (laughs) Okay. Now, if we're in that kind of an environment, and we go back and read the Old Testament, how are we ever going to find this stimulating enough to hold our attention? Now, this is not just youth groups. There was another church. We were considering, some of the medical staff in, here at our church and I were considering whether to have a short-term medical trip to uh, Haiti this summer. Now, it's not going to come off, it looks like, but in the course of that, I did an Internet search, and I found a church that has a vibrant ministry, uh, a significant ministry that we would have loved to partner with. But I don't know the church. So I did an Internet search. I, did, I used that church name, and then I used plus... And I put scandal, just in case, you know, the quick way to find out, right? It turns out that the draw people in that church was having four times a year or maybe more, they were having mixed martial arts fights among church members. (laughs) 
you know, to draw in an audience. And it had become a scandal because somebody had died at a recent fight. I mean, yeah. So in a world which is built so much, marketing is built so much on immediate stimulation. You know, how do you connect with anything written? Eh? If it's more than 140, if it's more than 140 characters, how do you connect with it at all? And so the Old Testament. So part of it is just that we're in a culture that that overstimulates. Now you notice uh, the presider's prayer and that list of things he gave thanks for. Now I didn't catch the whole list, but the two items I caught were beautiful spouse and fast smartphone. I got 50% of that, you know. I got a dumb phone. What'd you think I was going to (laughs) say? Any of you that thought that, you buy Jane a cake this week instead of me. Okay, so here's the point. You know, if the sermon lags just a minute or two, boom, whip out the phone. Watch a video if you can figure out how to, you know, if you have wireless, at least Bluetooth or whatever, so I don't see the cord hanging down from your ear. You know, we're so overstimulated that it's hard to read any books, particularly a book that was written, say, 3,000 years ago, or or a piece of a book that was written 3,000 years ago. That's, you know, that's, I think, something we have to come to terms with, living in such a connected, wired age. I'd say there's two other reasons more quickly. One is that sometimes when we read the Old Testament, the point's not all that obvious. You know, I, I know a lot of people try to read the Bible in a year. And it was really noble discipline. But I'm thinking, how do you ever figure out? You know, when I have to preach on Joshua 1, the church gives me a week to figure this out. If you're going to read the Bible in a year, you have to read three chapters in one day. How do you have time in a day to figure out what all those three chapters are about? So the point's not all that obvious. And then, as today's text will show us, even when the point is obvious, the relevance of the point is not all that obvious. You know, this text is about Israel invading Palestine, invading Canaan, to get land. Now, if you're not Jewish, and you live in America, it's not all that obvious how relevant it is. And as it happens, if you are Jewish, and you live in Palestine, it's not all that obvious how relevant, or well, it, you know, the, the obvious relevance may actually not be the right relevance. So I, I think there are these three challenges. But here's the thing, why do we still do it? You know, if we can't read the Old Testament, if we can't preach from and study the Old Testament, we have to throw away two-thirds of our Bible. The only Bible that Jesus had, the only Bible that the apostles had, is the Old Testament. Now, I've been recently reading a book. This is brilliant. I may, may have mentioned it to some, some of you. I, I don't know. Uh, by an anthropologist. She went to an evangelical church for four years, and she's a, got a PhD in anthropology. She's an anthropology professor. So because she went to an evangelical church for four years, she got to write a book, and it became a, best, or it became a critic's choice and all that. Famous book now. And the book is entitled, When God Talks Back. And what she was studying was how people develop the notion that when they pray, not only is God listening, but but God's actually talking back to them. And that was the focus of her study over the course of... That was the thing that stuck out to her the most as she went to those churches, and that was the the focus of her study. 
But the point I would make is this. To whatever extent God does speak to us individually about specifics in our lives, never in the Bible is that the main way that God speaks to his people. Throughout Scripture, and including in Joshua 1, the main way that God speaks to his people is through Scripture. So if we get rid of two-thirds of the Bible, we're getting rid of two-thirds of the things that God has said to his people over the centuries and what he's saying to us today. And we can't say, well, God, you just talk to me straight. Because, you know, I came from that kind of a tradition. And some of the things people hear God say to them are, are really quite eccentric. And hard to believe. So the most reliable, you know, God can and does speak that way sometimes. But the most reliable, authoritative, trustworthy way that God speaks to us is through the Bible. So even if reading is not our natural inclination anymore, and even if reading old books is not our natural inclination anymore, we really need to do it. I can't help with the, with the overstimulation. But I can help you with identifying what's the original point of the text. And I can help you with figuring out how is it relevant today. Now, this sermon is a little bit denser, or the sermon outline is a little bit denser, that's in your bulletin, than normal, just because this is the first sermon in this series. And we're going to be preaching through the book of Joshua. So, let me take you through, what is the, two questions we're going to ask today. One is, what's the original point? What point was Joshua communicating, or the author of Joshua communicating in its own time? What point was God making to the people who first read this? And then secondly, how is that relevant to us today? So first we ask, what was the original point of this text? Because it's the Old Testament, because this is the first sermon, we have to put this original text in its original context. We have to, put, we have to ask the question, first of all, where does it fit in? Where does the book of Joshua, not just Joshua 1, where does the book of Joshua fit in with what God was doing? And New Testament, oh, Bible scholars have only been thinking about this for the last 10 or 20 years. It's really quite surprising that we never thought about this before. But the question becomes, where does this all fit in? Here's what's going on. Genesis chapter 1. If you read Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter of the Bible, then you read Revelation chapters 20 to 22 the last chapters in the Bible, you realize there's a correspondence. There's creation in Genesis 1. And then there's a new creation in Revelation 20 to 22. The story ends on one note, it begins on one note, and it ends on a comparable note. And actually, as it turns out, the entire Bible has only one basic storyline. From beginning to end, this is a narrative. There is something going on, and every part of that Bible has a place in this storyline. So whenever we go, particularly in the Old Testament, whenever we go to anywhere in the Old Testament, we've got to say, where are we in the storyline? And so I'll use the stage. Here's how the storyline goes. Genesis 1. Genesis 1, God made everything, and he made it good. Remember? Good, 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 very good, the text says. Genesis 1 tells us about God, it tells us about us, and it tells us about our relationship with the world around us. And what it says is that all this stuff is good. God is with his people talking and relating to them on an intimate level, like when, when God talks back, like that book talks about. Well, God used to do that. 
this intimate relationship between God and man. And then God created woman, and, and man and woman actually lived harmoniously together. Unlike, well, sometimes today. And then, not just God and man, not just man and woman, but also man in his environment. God put man in a garden to tend it. Work was part of the original creation plan. But work was not frustrating. It was rewarding and fulfilling. And all he said was obey. The only condition he laid on, obey this one thing. Keep away from there. The next step in this story, Genesis 2 and 3, they disobey. And so they diso in, when they disobey, they lose that relationship with God. They run and hide. They lose that relationship with each other. They start blaming each other. And then they lose that relationship with the land. From now on, as their punishment, they will still work the soil. But then there will be weeds and thistles and it, it, it'll be a, a brutal task and a frustrating task. God doesn't leave it there with that note of judgment. God offers a third step. I'm skipping over some intervening stuff. But, but in this third step, then, God calls. He's, God leaves behind the world, and God calls one man and then one people. And he, makes those, he promises to give them those same three things that were lost. The same three things that Adam had in Eden, the same things that were lost through the fall, he promises Abraham. What does he promise Abraham? First, he promises to bless him. And God is restoring the relationship between himself and Abraham. And then he promises Abraham descendants. He's going to restore the family relationship. And, and Abraham will have descendants too many to count. And he promises Abraham a place. A land for himself, a place to replace Eden. There's going to be a new place. And it's going to be Abraham's. And it's going to belong to his descendants and Abraham. And they're going to live there and they're going to be safe and they're going to have this relationship with God. They're going to have this warmth relationship with each other. And they're going to have a, a place to call their own. And eventually, God promises, this won't just be for you and your descendants. God will give it to everybody through Abraham. He'll restore back what, what it was in Eden. Everyone will have access to this through Abraham and the blessing to Abraham. And you know, God began to fulfill his promise because if you look at the second half of the book of Genesis, here's the next step. What does God do? One person who was too old to have children had children. And then those children had children. And you go from uh, one couple, you go to 12 then you go to 70. And then there's a famine. And, and, and they leave their land. And it looks like God's promise is failing. And they go move to Egypt where they have safety and prosperity. And they reproduce. And suddenly 70 becomes Thousands upon thousands and tens of thousands. And you can't number them so many. And there's so many of these immigrants in Egypt that the superpower, Egypt, is worried that they're going to rebel and cause trouble and enslaves them. But you see what God had done. The promise to the land looked like it was lost. But God fulfilled that first promise. He gave them descendants upon descendants upon descendants. And then God brought back the promise of the land. And the next step is... God takes them out of Egypt, 
in the book of Exodus. And then God intends for them to go to this new land that he's going to give them. But remember, they had to obey. And God, so many of them, he fulfilled that promise. And God said, I'm going to give you the land. Go into this land. And they said, no. God had brought an infertile couple, two people. He brought them to be hundreds of thousands of people. And then he says, I'm going to give you a land. And they say, no. And so God has them wander in the wilderness for 40 years in the book of Numbers. And then God comes to them in the book of Deuteronomy and says to them, let's repair this relationship. So you know what I expect of you. You know what I've done for you and you know what I expect of you. Let's repair this relationship because I'm going to now give you that land. And that's where we are as we go into Joshua. God is going to give them that land. He's already fulfilled the first promise. Descendants innumerable. Now he's going to fulfill the second promise. He's going to give them land. Now, just by way of anticipation, really quickly, the whole rest of the Old Testament is about God giving them the land. Because God gives them land, and they don't honor God, and they don't worship God. They rebel against God. And God, hundreds of years, God will send one prophet after another. He'll give them judges. He'll give them kings. He, he tells them, stay with me, you know, repent. Worship me, serve me, and you'll still have the land. And they refuse, so God kicks them out of the land. They're conquered, they're going to exile. And then in exile, they repent, and God brings them back to the land. So all the rest of the Old Testament promises is about them gaining the land, losing the land, and getting the land back again. And the Old Testament never gets to that third promise. What about the nations? When is this going to be about something other than Abraham and the patriarchs and the Jews? When is God ever going to care about the nations again? But backing up where we are now, the original point, where it fits, this is it. God has fulfilled one promise. And an infertile couple has become hundreds of thousands of people. Now God is going to fulfill that second promise, land. And we'll look at a moment what that says to us. Now, that's the context. That's the original point. That's where it fits in. Now, what does it say? And you know, briefly, let's take a look together at this. It's page 151. In that context, when God promises, he comes to Joshua and says, look, I'm going to give you the land. What does God say? What does this text say to us? Or say in its original meaning. Notice, first of all, verses 2 through 8. 2 through 6, sorry. 2 through 6. Here's the commission. I'm going to give you the land. Go in and take it. Verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. No one will be able, able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land that I swore to their forefathers to give them. Do you see how often he makes reference to the land? I'm going to give you the land, I'm going to give you the land, I'm going to give you the land, now go take the land. This is where we are in the story. So here's the commission. You want a place to live? You're tired of this wilderness, this desert? 
having no homes, no permanent home, having no fields, having no flocks, or dragging them around, looking for field, looking for fodder for your flocks. He says, I'm going to give you a land. That's the commission. Here's the condition. Verse 7 and 8. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Don't turn to it. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. This is never about earning God's favor. This is never about earning grace or earning salvation or earning land. The Old Testament is never about working for God's approval. The Old Testament is always about God shows grace. In Eden, God created and he created good. God shows grace. Here, uh, God promised descendants. God delivered. Here, God offers land. It's always about God's generosity. And yet, it's always about a reciprocation. This is not a relationship where they can manipulate God. It's not always about gimme, gimme, gimme. God says, look, I give. And now he says, reciprocate. Love me. Obey me. And so you always have this, this gift of grace, the commission, which is the land, and then the same condition as we've always seen before. Now respond to me appropriately. Love me. Obey me. And then you have a promise in verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Here is the promise. They're going to face some entrenched tribal groups behind walled cities. They're going to face life and death battles. And here's the promise of God. I will be with you. And as we look at that promise in Scripture, it's not just that I'm going to be with you, you know, uh, like caring for you emotionally or whatever. The promise in Scripture that I'm going to be with you is a promise that God will fight with them. God will fight for them. God will care for them, intervene on their behalf. Not just giving them emotional comfort, but assist them in this battle. So we have a commission. God calls them to the land. We have a condition, obedience. And then we have a promise. He says, the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And finally, in this passage, we have a response. Verses 10 and 11, Joshua orders the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your supplies ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land your God has given you for your own. And then later on, we didn't read it in, in the scripture reading, but verse 16. The people answered Joshua, note this. Whatever you have commanded us, we will do. Wherever you, you send us, we will go. They're on the verge of the new land where their forefathers, the previous generation, had been in that same place, about to enter the new land. And God told the previous generation, go. And they said, no, we're afraid, we don't trust you. So God said, okay, stay. Forty years, pointless wandering in an insecure wilderness. 
And now the children are at the edge of, adult children are at the edge of that land. And God says, I give you a second chance. Go. And they say in response, not just to Moses, but they say in response to God, whatever you have commanded us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. They have the choice here. Are we going to be like our forefathers in the book of Numbers? Or are we going to trust God who has already fulfilled one promise and is now promising to fulfill the second? They didn't always live up to this. Often they didn't live up to it, but at least they started here. Whatever you have commanded us, we will do. Where you send us, we will go. That's the original point. God has come to fulfill his promise in their lives. He calls on them to obey. And he faces them with a choice. Are they going to go or are they going to hold back? Now, how is that relevant to us? Let's think about it a little bit. You know, often we try to make the... We want God to speak to us. We want God to be involved in us. Often we make the Bible about us individually, right? So what does this text say to you if this is about you individually? Let's say you're a young adult. You've recently got married. You've got a kid on the way. And you're looking for a house. What does this text say to you? You know, God's promised you a piece of property. If you have the courage to go take it, and a house in a nice western suburb with good schools where your kids will get a good education. You know, this is not about me finding a house. Right? This is not about me finding, buying land in a new place. God has not promised me land. What does we say? It's not literal. What do we say if it's still about us, but we make it metaphorical? Now, you know, we, we have a good history of this in the Christian church. Do you remember? That, you know, we don't sing this hymn much anymore because we don't sing hymns much anymore. Do you remember this? Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I lack no more. And then verse 3. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fear subside. Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. Now, now the hymn is perfectly legitimate as a metaphorical interaction with God. It's perfectly legitimate with artistic license. You just have to realize this text is not about that. It is not a legitimate interpretation of Joshua, but it's a legitimate use of Joshua for worship. That part's okay. You know, it's a legitimate illustration of Joshua in my relationship with God. You know, artistic license. You can get away with a lot. But that's not what Joshua is really talking about. Because the New Testament never goes back to this text and says to anyone in the New Testament, God has land for you individually. And the New Testament doesn't go back to this passage in Joshua and say, well, God, you know, God will be like this in your life when you're facing some kind of other crisis other than land. You know, you face crisis, then that's your Jordan River. What's your Jordan River? Some crisis you face. 
And God will bring her through that Jordan to the new land. It's perfectly okay in worship and artistic license and a metaphorical way of talking about us and God. God does do those things. But that's not what God's talking about in Joshua. That's not really how it fits in our lives today. It's not really about us individually. Now, another way this passage has been used wrongly, it's not about us collectively, nationally. You realize, uh, I did some research, it turns out that when America, in the founding of America, you know, uh, there were a lot of biblically informed people at the founding of America. And so, this text was used for the settlers coming into America and taking over the land and declaring independence. This Bible text was used. And who do you suppose was Joshua in those days? George Washington was Joshua because America was Israel and this geographical region was Canaan. This Bible text is not really about the conquest of America by the early settlers and the pilgrims and whatever. It's not really about that. So what is this text about today? How about this? Where have you heard these words before? I will be with you. Be careful to obey. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. You know, I told you that the Old Testament tells a story. The whole Bible tells a story from beginning to end. The question is, where are we in that story? Where did God quit caring just about Jews? Remember when Jesus rose from the dead? In the New Testament, we never hear again about land. Never. All we hear about in the New Testament is all the earth. Not geographically bounded earth. All the earth. And in the New Testament, the first lesson they had to learn was it's no longer just about Israel. It's about all peoples. So if we want to apply Joshua 1 today, we don't apply it back in the Old Testament times when they were looking for a land. We apply it to the time period that we're living in. The New Testament time period. And this is what the New Testament does. Because listen to the words of Matthew chapter 28. Jesus gives a commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. It's no longer go to Canaan. Now it's go to all nations. And he sets down a condition. Teaching them to do what? To obey everything I have commanded you. The same condition as the book of Joshua. And he gives them a promise. What is that promise? He takes that promise straight out of the book of Joshua. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. If we read Joshua 1, it's about God's commission, his condition, his promise, and our response. And it tracks directly to Matthew 28. Matthew is alluding to this. Jesus is alluding to this as he gives them the Great Commission. It's no longer about Palestine. 
It's about the whole earth. It's no longer about Israel. It's now about all peoples. The condition is still there. Obedience as a reciprocation for God's love. And the promise is now ours. I will be with you always. As we obey, as we engage in this commission, this is the promise we have from Jesus, that he will be with us always, even to the end of the earth. Now, there was one other element in that text, and this is the response. The question for them was, were they going to be like their forefathers in numbers, or were they going to cut their own path in obedience to God? And that's still the question that confronts his church today. You realize that Jesus spoke Matthew 28 2,000 years ago. And you realize that there's still large tracts of people who have never heard the gospel and don't have access to the gospel. They don't have anyone that can tell them. You know, they got no one living nearby that knows their language, knows their culture, knows them. They got no one in their same socioeconomic bracket, whatever. They got no real access to the gospel after 2,000 years. So somebody obviously has not been reading Joshua 1 or Matthew 28 or, or they've been reading it and they did like the numbers people did and they said, well, we're scared. We don't think you're going to be there for us. Now, we're, we're evidence. We're all evidence that somebody's been obeying. And I think we, one thing we want to celebrate together as a church is that this church has been very active. For a church our size to send out as many people in the missions as we have is really significant. We need to celebrate this. But the job is still not done. And it's not just up to people like Mary going out for the summer or our youth going out for one week or two week trips. You know, the, the question that Joshua 1 poses to all of us really is this. How can we use our lives to further God's commission? How can we use our lives where we are? And how can we use our lives not just to provide gospel to Americans who have a lot of access to the gospel, but how can we use our lives to participate in this process of providing the gospel to other people elsewhere? Maybe what you want to do is adopt a country and pray for it for the next 20 or 30 years, or a people group, until they're evangelized successfully. How can we engage with our missionaries? And how about this, particularly if you're young enough still to make life direction choices? How might God use me? What, what country? You know, God gave Canaan to them. What country might God give us to pray for? What country might God give us to support missionaries that go there? What country or people group might God call us to be? Joshua 1 is not just a story about a courageous leader 3,000 years ago. Joshua 1 is an exhortation to God's people today, to us. When Joshua spoke, they replied, Whatever you have commanded us to do, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. Jesus commissions us today, and his word comes to us. And the question is, 
in some way, small or big, what will we do today? What will we do moving forward to say in response to Jesus, what you have commanded me, I will do. Where you send me, I will go. Let's pray together. Father, we can be here today.